Father, like a parent loves a child, you love us. Lord, you are our heavenly Father. And Lord, your word says that as our Father, you pour your love into our hearts. And I pray that as we look at your word today, Lord, that we would receive that. We ask it in your son's name. Amen. Um, quite a few years ago now, I was I had the privilege of visiting Mammoth Cave in Kentucky, uh, which is like one of the largest cave systems in the world. And we go on this tour, and you go like miles in underground, and uh, just about the middle of the tour, you end up uh, in this one uh, giant cavern in the middle of Mammoth Cave, and the tour guide who is with you tells you that it's about the size of a, a big indoor football stadium. That's the size of it. Uh, I think he, he said it was like the Superdome. I've never been there. I don't know how big it is, but this place was big. And, you know, we're about a mile into the, to the tour as, we, as we're in this, uh, this massive cavern. And he's telling us all about it and saying, you know, there's actually, there's, there's zero outside light that feeds its way in here. We're so far underground that there is no source of light whatsoever in here except the lights that they put in the tour. And so he's telling us all the stuff, and then he goes, anybody have any questions? And I was like, yeah, I got a question. What happens if we turn the lights off? He goes, I was hoping somebody would ask that. And so he walks over to the wall, like, you, like in your living room, and he just flips one switch, and all the lights go off. And it is completely and utterly pitch black. He goes, uh, only you put your hand in front of your face and just keep moving it towards your face until you can see your hand. And all of us doing this until our hands reach our faces. You can't see anything. And then all of a sudden you hear him kind of rustling around in his pockets and you hear the little like noise of a lighter. And he lights a candle and holds the candle up and it illuminates the entire cavern. Every stalactite, every stalagmite there, you can see it all, just this one little flame. Now just think about that for a minute. What did the darkness do? What did that darkness do to us? You know, actually it induced in quite a few of us in the group, it induced fear and anxiety. We were all extremely uncomfortable. Um, also, by the way, it gave the, thankfully nobody did this, but it gave the opportunity for nefariousness. You know, sort of like in the movie Clue, you know, the lights go out and then you hear a noise and lights come on and somebody's dead. Uh, that could have happened. It could have happened. Uh, you know, if someone could steal someone's wallet, you wouldn't know who did it. You'd have no idea who did it. Uh, under the cover of utter darkness, all kinds of nefariousness, it's available to you. But then what did the light do? Think about what the light did. You know, the guy lit that candle, illuminated everything. What did it do? Well, the light brought comfort. It brought hope. It brought clarity. It brought direction. We could find our way out now. We knew where the cave went on. It actually even connected us to our fellow travelers once again. In other words, it brought fellowship amongst us. And by the way, it also, it would keep us from nefariousness, from wickedness. It was, the light was like an accountability for us to act in righteousness. Don't, you can't steal someone's wallet because now I can see you. Now hold on to that because last week we started talking about um, the word joy. We're, we're looking at uh, the book of 1 John in the New Testament. And last week we started talking about this idea of joy. And what we saw in those first four verses of this book is that the way to get joy is not to look for it directly. The way we get joy, says John, is, is not through chasing after joy, but actually through loving fellowship with God and one another. Um, it looks like this little drawing that I did. If we can go to the next slide. Uh, these are some of my famous drawings if you're a visitor here. Um, and uh, this, is, this is what one scholar calls the triangle of, of fellowship. And what we said is that there are 
Um, the, the way that we experience joy is like, my relationship with God is intact. Your relationship with God is intact. And our relationship with one another is intact. And if those things are strong, then what emanates out of that, John says, is joy. We experience joy. That's how we get it. But of course, there's ways of, of that joy breaking. You can keep kind of going through these. If the, you know, my fellowship with God is broken, then that, that diminishes my joy. Or next one, if, if my fellowship with you is broken, that diminishes joy. Or even if your fellowship with God is broken, that diminishes my joy. And what we said at the end of last week is there's four hindrances to this fellowship between God and one another, and therefore four hindrances to us experiencing joy. And the very first one we mentioned uh, very briefly last week is this idea of sin. So strap yourselves in. Here we go. We're talking about sin. Um, sin, by the way, it's, it's a harmful act. Uh, it's a harmful thought. It's a harmful word against another person, against God, maybe even against yourself. That's what sin is. Any way that you would harm yourself or God or others, that's what sin is. And anytime we do something like that, it causes that break in the fellowship with one another or with God or even between another person and God. And as that happens, our joy is diminished. That's what we saw last week. And in this letter we're looking at in 1 John, John's going to spend the next few paragraphs talking about these breaks in fellowship. What is the sin that gets in the way? And he uses a metaphor. Uh, the whole first half of the letter, he uses this one primary metaphor to talk about sin, and that's the metaphor of light and darkness. And so in this book, John makes two utterly profound statements of, about God. One is here in our passage today, and the other we'll come to in a few weeks. He says here in this, these verses that God is light. And then over in chapter 4, he says that God is love. And so in other words, to have God in your life is to have both light and love. If God's in your, in your life, then you have those things. On the other hand, if you don't have God in your life, that's to have the opposite. That would be to have darkness and hatred. But let's start where John starts in this letter. He starts with God is light. And so let's go back into our cave. And when you think about the kind of world you feel that you're living in today. And I don't mean just generally speaking. I mean your life, the way you're living, what's going on in, in your world. Do you feel like you're living in one with the lights on or the lights off? Do you want light in your life? Do you want hope? Do you want clarity? Do you want direction, fellowship? Do you want fellow travelers? What John says is to have God in your life and to be in his church is to have those things. Because to have God in your life is to have his light. And therefore to have joy. All of this, by the way, is why a family like the Quins would dedicate their child to be brought up in the church. And so that their child will grow up with access to the light of Christ in fellowship with Christians and in the hopes that as she grows into adulthood, she would choose to live in the light of Christ and to share that light with others. That's why we do that. Now, John shows us four things in these verses. He, and we'll just go through them. He shows us the light of God. He shows us the revealing nature of light, the healing of, of the light, and the benefit of the light. And so we'll look at those four things. But let's start with God of light, the God of light. He says very simply, in just three one-syllable words, and he summarizes in these three words what it took millennia, the biblical authors, to try and, and unpack. And he does it in three one-syllable words. God is light. And of course, this is not some kind of new revelation that he's introducing. Notice what he says, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. And so John is passing along in summary form something that he's received already, something that he heard from God himself. 
And what he's referring to is Jesus Christ one time uh, said over in the Gospel of John, another book that this same author wrote, in the Gospel of John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus stands up in front of a crowd of people and he says, I am the light of the world. And this is what John is passing on. Now just to expand on what Jesus said there when he said, I'm the light of the world, it's helpful to know really where Jesus was and what was happening around him when he said, I'm the light of the world. Because that's a pretty extreme statement. Like if somebody were to say, I'm the light of the world, that's an extreme statement. And actually, you don't even know how extreme it is yet, because listen to, listen to where he is and, and, and what was going on when he said it. Jesus was right in the center of the city of Jerusalem when he said it, at one of the primary religious festivals that happened in ancient Jerusalem. So three, four times a year, the whole nation, people actually had moved out of the country, would come back and they'd all congregate in Jerusalem for these huge festivals. And uh, that's where Jesus is. You know, we don't really have anything quite equivalent in the Western world today. The closest thing that we have is probably something like what happens when a sports team wins a championship. Usually there's a parade and uh, crowds of hundreds of thousands of people come to celebrate. A few years ago, uh, when we were living in, uh, in England, our soccer club won the European Champions League. And the very next day, we had this huge parade uh, and the parade went right past our apartment building. And so I was like, oh, I want to be part of the crowd. I want to be out there. And so there were not tens of thousands out there. We're talking hundreds of thousands celebrating and singing in unison. This is, this is what it looked like. You can go to the next one. Um, one more. There we go. Uh, I'm down in the bottom uh, right of that photo. <laughs> now, where Jesus is standing when he says, I am the light of the world, is in a scene something like that, but instead of cheering for a sports team, everyone's come to worship God. This is where Jesus is. And there were two really important symbols during that particular festival. It's called the Festival of Tabernacles. And what everyone would do at this festival is they'd build these little lean-to huts, and they would intentionally leave holes in the roof so that while they're laying down to go to sleep at night, they could look up at the stars in the sky. They could see through the roof. And the idea is that they're looking at light. They're seeing the lights in the sky. That's the picture there. And then the other symbol during this festival were four massive Olympic flame-sized lanterns, about 75 feet high. And they were lit outside the tabernacle. And again, this is a symbol of light. It's a picture of light. These, these lamps would light up the whole city. They were meant to be a reminder of how God showed up as light, as a pillar of smoke by day and a fire by night when he led Israel from salvation, uh, out of slavery uh, in Egypt to their salvation. And so here they are, this whole entire nation filling the streets of Jerusalem, thinking about light, thinking about the fact that God himself showed up as light in the world, and Jesus stands up, likely near these four lanterns that are illuminating the majority of the city, and he says, I am the light of the world. In other words, he says, I am the God who led your ancestors out of Egypt as a pillar of light. And not only that, Jesus went on to say in this very same one sentence later, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so this is what John heard. This is what John heard. This is what he declares, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. You know, God's always been described as light, by the way. In Psalm 104, verse 2, it says that God is wrapped in light. And this is the God that John is saying with whom we can have fellowship. 
but not so fast, because what's the nature of this light? If God is light, what does that mean? And then secondly, what does that reveal? And this is point two, the revealing nature of light. So we've seen that God himself is light, but what's the nature of this light? When it says here in verse five that God is light and in him is no darkness, and what, what that's talking about is his utter holiness, his purity. Now think about this, light and darkness, they can't have fellowship at all, can they? Turn on a light and immediately the darkness flees. Turn off the light and immediately the darkness rushes back in. The two can't occupy the same time and space. And so what this is saying is that God is pure light. There's no space in him for darkness, meaning that God is utterly pure, utterly holy. Now, in our culture today, we tend to look at a passage that claims something like this and say, well, yeah, God is pure, God is holy, he's righteous. And, and we, many of us will look at that like that's a negative thing. It's the reason many will point to for their rejection of God. His standards are just too high. I couldn't possibly follow a God who's so perfect, who's so pure. Uh, many years ago now, when I was looking to buy an engagement ring for Emmy, my wife, um, I don't know why I had to clarify that she's my wife, but I did. Um, I guess maybe you don't know, some of you don't know the end of the story. Maybe I didn't get married, I don't know, but... Um, anyway, when I was looking for her engagement ring, I have a friend who's a jeweler, and he's an expert. He's not just a jeweler, but he's a gemologist, so he's an expert in diamonds and other gems. And, and you know, buying a diamond, especially for a young man, is quite a large purchase, especially when we don't have very much money. And um, I had a girlfriend who, she might have had standards of what she wanted uh, in what the diamond was. I don't know. She might have, she might not have. She did. And so I needed to make sure that I did very well in picking out this diamond. And my friend explained to me, he goes, Ken, there's the four C's of grading a diamond's value. Any of you who've bought an engagement ring, hopefully you, you know these things. Uh, but it's the cut, the color, the clarity, and the carrot. So the cut is how it's shaped. The color is like, you know, is it yellow or is it like crystal clear? Uh, the clarity of it, are there imperfections? Are there scratches in it? Are there little, you know, things floating in it? Uh, and the carrot is the size of it. And uh, it's, it's not that there is one of these, but it's almost like there's a perfect standard, almost as if there's a perfect diamond that has the highest grade of all four Cs. And every diamond essentially is graded against that perfect diamond. Now, if I put that diamond in front of you, of course, you'd look at it and say, wow, that diamond is good. Wow, that, that, that diamond is so pure. And you'd say, wow, it's so good. In its nature, it's good. In its purity, its purity actually is its goodness. And this is exactly what John is pointing to when he says that God is light. He's actually saying that God's purity is his goodness. There's another spot in the Bible that we've talked about this quite a bit here at Christ Church, and we, we do it because it's one of the most revealing passages in the Bible of God's nature, of his character. But over in Exodus 33 and 34, Moses prayed a prayer that went like this. He said, God, show me your glory. And God responds to me, he says, well, I, I can't. I'm too holy, I'm too pure for you to lay his eyes upon my face. If you see my face, you're going to die. And what this is getting at is God's light, his holiness, his, his purity, to be in God's presence, to see his face, to see his perfect holiness and his purity. That's the light that he's talking about. And he's saying, you can't do that. 
And when God, God then says something very interesting to Moses. Um, we'll put this one on the screen, Exodus 33, verse 19. And the Lord said, remember, he's talked about his purity. He's talked about his holiness. And then look how he phrases it. I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. And what God is saying is his purity is his goodness. But just like the perfect diamond, if you saw it, you wouldn't think it is bad. You wouldn't hate it. You would love it. You would immediately be drawn to it. And you'd also recognize every flaw in your own diamond. That would happen immediately. And in this same way, God's purity, his holiness, his light, that is his goodness. Because look at what else he says. He says, I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. And then when that happens, when God does it, he doesn't just walk by and be like, the Lord, and keep going. Somebody got that later. Cool. He proclaims his goodness. Look at this. Over in Exodus 34, we'll put this on the screen too. This is what God proclaims as he passes by Moses. In other words, what he's saying now, this is his full name, okay? My full name is Kenneth Franklin Lipple. That's my whole name. Every time I walk in front of you now, I'm just going to say that. You know who I am. This is what God does when he walks in front of Moses. This is his full name. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation. Now you might hear that and think only the first half of that is his goodness, but the whole thing is his goodness. Because you want a God who is just. You want a God who, who does not leave wickedness alone. Now this is the point. This is God's holiness. And God's holiness, he said, what did he say? My goodness will pass before you. His holiness is his goodness. Or put it this way. Light equals goodness, or light equals holiness equals goodness. Now, in all fairness to someone who would reject God because of his holiness, in other words, reject God because his standards are, are too high, if that's you, if, that, if you're still saying that, do you know what? Guess what? You're right. <laughs> I'm with you. Because there's a revealing nature to God's holiness, to his goodness. And that does make us uncomfortable. In fact, that should make us uncomfortable. And so actually, if your response to the goodness and the holiness of God is to feel uncomfortable about your brokenness, you're in exactly the right place. Because now that we've seen the nature of the light, look at what the light reveals. God's light actually reveals our darkness. Or, or put it better, it actually reveals what we do in the darkness. And that will always make us uncomfortable. It should make us uncomfortable. Verse 6, in, back in 1 John 1, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. In other words, what that's saying is that whenever light is shown, it, it reveals truth. Walk into a dark room, turn on the lights, it reveals the truth of all the furniture in the room and, and where everything is. And quite frankly, the truth is always uncomfortable for the person who's not living in it. And that's what he's saying here. I told you to strap in because we're talking about sin, but I don't want you to forget the point of all of this. 
Don't forget what we're really talking about. Don't forget John's reason for writing all this. He said it back in verse 4. He said, I'm writing this so that you will have joy. And the reason he talks about darkness, in other words, he talks about sin, is because our sin is a direct hindrance to our joy. Because remember what causes joy. Remember what joy is a byproduct of. Joy is a byproduct of our fellowship with God and with others. Your fellowship with God, my fellowship with God, our fellowship with one another, the byproduct of all of those relationships is joy. And what John is saying here is it's, it's actually the things that we do in the darkness those things are the things that hinder our fellowship with God and with one another. And so the point that John is making here in verses 6 to 10 is, if we want to have this joy that comes through fellowship, we've got to have the darkness removed. We need the light. We need the light of God to come in and cast the darkness away allow the light of God to enter into our lives because not only, get this, not only does light have a revealing property, it has a healing property too. And that's point three, the healing of the light. The, the very first line of C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, it's part of the Chronicles of Narnia series, it's one of my favorite lines in all of literature and it goes like this. His name was Eustace Clarence Scrub and he almost deserved it. And in that line, you learn everything you need to know about Eustace Clarence Scrub. You already know that kid. He's that brat, that entitled selfish brat who's full of pride and is the tattletale. If you don't know that kid, that was you. You were him, okay? <laughs> now, remember, this is the sort of fairy tale fantasy novel with talking animals. And there's a scene in the book where uh, Eustace comes upon a dragon's horde. Uh, and dragons, if you don't know, they love gold. And in this dragon's hoard, he finds piles of gold coins and gold plates and gold bars and jewelry. And, and he looks at it and he gets greedy. He, cover, he covets it. And by the way, he's, he's all by himself. So he, you know, in his mind, he's in the dark. Nobody knows. Nobody can see what he's doing. He's all alone. No one's going to find out if he takes a little bit. I mean, there's so much anyway. The dragon's not going to notice. A few things missing. But in his greed... One of the things he takes is a gold bracelet. He slips it on his arm, and then because he'd been out exploring and climbing around this goal, he gets a little tired, and he lays down for a nap. And when Eustace wakes up, he realizes that he's turned into a dragon. And as the story unfolds, he finds himself in excruciating pain because he's still wearing the gold bracelet, but now he's a giant dragon, and the bracelet stayed the same size. So he's in this excruciating pain as his bracelet is squeezing his arm. And not only that, as you read on, you find out he's just lonely. He, he had his cousins that he was traveling with and some other friends he met along the way, but they're scared of him. He has no fellowship, no fellow travelers anymore, and so he's lonely and he's in pain. And he wants so badly to be turned back into a boy, and this is when he meets the character Aslan. Aslan, again, it's a fantasy tale about talking animals, so Aslan is actually the Christ figure. Uh, he is, so to speak... Um, in this world with talking animals, he is God in the flesh. That's who Aslan is. And so Eustace, the dragon, comes to Aslan and he says, could you turn me back into a boy? To use John's language in the pa passage, it's almost as if he came and said, could you, could you cast light, cast out my darkness? He wants to live in the light again. And so Aslan says, well, okay, to do that, you'll have to peel off your dragon skin. 
And so Eustace tries, he tries once, he tries twice, he tries a third time, and each time it's only the outer layer of the skin that comes off like a shake, a snake shedding its, its skin. And so finally Aslan says to him, you'll have to let me undress you. And then here's how Eustace describes that experience to his cousins and his friends after the fact. He says, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I had done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been, I'd been turned into a boy again. Now this is essentially what John is saying in verses 6 to 10, and again in chapter 2, verse 2. This is what he's saying needs to happen to each and every one of us if we want fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. You know, in the story, it was his sin that broke both things. And we need Christ to come and to shine his light into our lives in order to purify the things that we've done in the darkness. And just like for Eustace in the story, that will be painful. But it will be good. Look at verse 7. The way to have fellowship with God, the way to have fellowship with one another, and remember those Two things are the things that bring joy into our lives. The way to get that, verse 7, it says, is for the blood of Jesus to purify us from all our sin. That phrase there, purifies us from all sin, it's not, by the way, it's not the idea of forgiveness. That idea shows up two verses later. The meaning here of purifies is more like removing the stain, tearing the dragon skin off. So purification has the, the future in mind so that our past sins don't have permanent results in the future. That's the picture here. And then look at how we get that purification, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, did you notice the order there? Confession, forgiveness, purification. Now, we tend to think it works the other way around. We tend to think, I've got to purify myself. I've got to get myself clean, and then I can present myself before God, and then he'll accept me. This is the other way around. The Bible says it's the other way around. You confess, you come in your brokenness to God. He accepts you there. And then he forgives you, and he purifies you. And how is it that God's able to do that? How is he able to forgive Remember, he's the light, he's pure, he's holy, he's righteous, he's just. And we're so unholy, so impure, so unjust. How is it that God can forgive? Verse 7, the blood of Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, verse 2, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And what that's saying is, the justice of God is satisfied in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross where he shed his blood. God himself bears the cost of forgiveness. I've used this illustration before, but this is 
This is how forgive, all forgiveness works. It works like this. So say you say to me after church, hey, Ken, you got a nice little iPad there. Can I borrow that? I wanted to watch something on Disney Plus this afternoon. Um, and I say, sure, yeah, you can take it home. Um, you know, just give it back to me tomorrow after you've watched your movie. And you go home and, you know, maybe you're just being a little bit, you know, maybe you're doing it while you're cooking and you got oil all over your hands and you pick it up to move it and it just slips right out of your hands, smashes on the floor into a thousand tiny pieces. Um, and then Monday morning, you come back to me and you go, here you go. Thanks for letting me use your iPad. I got about halfway through the movie. Um, and I look at it, I'm like, well, what happened? And you tell me, well, it slipped out of my hands and it hit the floor and it shattered into a million pieces. Now, there's three ways we can deal with that. One way to deal with that is, is I say, okay, well, you owe me you know, a few hundred dollars to, to replace the iPad. Another way to do it would be like, well, I've had it a couple of years and, um, you know, Maybe, uh, maybe it'll last me another couple of years, so why don't we just split the cost? We'll go 50-50. You pay half, I'll pay half. And that's how, we'll, that's how we'll atone for it. That's how we'll make it right. Or I can look at you and I can say, do you know what? I forgive you. And I don't make you pay the cost. Only the last one, only if I pay for it, is it truly forgiveness. Only if I bear the cost and you bear none of it. This is what John is saying. Do you get the radical nature of this? He is saying anyone who confesses their sins receive, they receive forgiveness. And beyond that, purity. Forgiveness in the moment and purity for the future. This is what it is to be a Christian. This is the greatest hope that I would have for each and every one of us. This is the greatest hope, by the way, that Cameron and Jess have for Sloane as she grows up, hearing about the God who is light. That she one day would confess her sins and that the God who is faithful and just would forgive her of her sins and purify her. This is what it is to be a Christian. Now, for the person who, who already is a Christian, whether you've become a Christian today, or you've been a Christian for 40 years or more, I want you to notice lastly, there's some benefits to being in the light. So point four, and this is very briefly the benefit of being in the light. There's two that show up in this passage. So let's go back to our cave. Remember our cave deep down underground? You think about the kind of world that you're living in, you know, one with the lights on, one with the lights off. And I can only imagine that you want the lights on, you want hope, you want clarity, you want direction, fellowship, you want fellow travelers. And that is what a person gets. That's the benefit of living in the light. Look very briefly again at verse 7. Notice the fellow travelers that we get. Look closely. Look really closely at verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, what do you expect it to say? You expect it to say, we have fellowship with Christ. But that's not what it says. Look what it says. We have fellowship with one another. You see that if we're walking in the light of Christ, then it means that we have fellowship with one another. To be in the light is to have fellow travelers, to have companions who will walk alongside of us, who will help to bear our burdens. In other words, what we get if we live in the light of Christ is friends. We get his church. That's one benefit. There's a second benefit. Because look who one of our friends is. 
One of our friends is Jesus Christ himself. Look over at chapter 2, verse 1. Right at the end of verse 1, it says, but if anybody does sin, it says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteousness, the righteous one. That word advocate, it, it's actually, it's the Greek word paraclete. It means literally someone who's called to one side. Someone who stands next to you, usually in the context of great need. Another way of, of translating that would be uh, one who lends his presence to his friends. We put it one more way. Jesus becomes your fellow traveler, your companion, your defender. And in what way does he help you? Look at the start of verse 1. He says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does, what great awareness John has about our nature. I hope you don't sin, but I know we're going to. And so what does our advocate do? He helps us with the very thing that breaks fellowship with God and one another and therefore steals our joy. Our advocate stands with us, next to us, before the Father at the moment of our greatest shame as we stand before the God who is light, who is holiness, who is purity. It says, that Jesus, it says here that Jesus Christ, the light of the world, it says that he is our friend who lends his own holy, pure presence as our defender in that moment. And he does that by means of, verse 2, his own atoning sacrifice for our sins. Which means our friend before God the Father is not some third-party individual, not some lawyer that we've hired, but is actually the one who died for our sins. And so here's the benefit. What that means is any time that we do sin, we can come to him. For as many times as we sin, we can come to him. We can come to him with confidence that he is our advocate, our paraclete, our friend, our fellow traveler who lends us his presence so that our sins will be forgiven and will be purified. So what John has said here is to have God in your life and to be in his church is to have joy. Because to have God in your life is to have light, it's to have fellowship with God, it's to have fellowship with his church, and if those things are intact, then you begin to experience joy. We pray that God would show you some of that joy. Father, we come before you, and, and Lord, we ask that you would fill us with this joy, Lord, because we have fellowship with you and fellowship with one another. Oh, Lord, would we have joy. We ask it in your name. Amen.